Hello and welcome to The Found Cause, where we found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael the Man behind the machine, and to my right, your left is... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. It's 200 episodes, Sebastian. We should have, like, fireworks, or maybe a special guest, or, like, Tony the Tiger or something. Champagne. We got, we got these mascots in the background. Yeah, we got none of that, so... Um, Sorry to disappoint anybody who was hoping for like a 200th episode bash. We have a we have an episode in the docket that is a running joke between all of us where Theodore came up with that idea where we do like a man on the street, Stephen Crowder style table at a local Walmart um, and, and with some evocative Christian question. None of us have the guts to do that, at least not yet. Um, maybe the Lord will provide someday. So that could have been a cool 200th episode, but nah, <laughs> not that. Theodore had his baby, praise God. Yeah. So Theodore's a new dad official baby petra uh baby petra so um that's that's the thing so he's not here he's taking care of the baby it's just me sebastian mm-hmm. so I, I know it has not actually been that long if you actually look at the episodes it feels like it's been a long time since it was just me and you um and sebastian mentioned in text he's like michael me and theodore are always driving he didn't say this out loud but this is what i'm gathering are always driving the topic of the episode whether it's the person to react to or it's the weird theology thing we're talking about why don't you suggest it and i was like I'm flattered. I don't mind when they pick all the episode topics. They pick good episode topics. But um, I first said, let's react to Gavin Orland. And he's like, ah, you might want to cool it. Give it a couple weeks on Gavin Orland, which is which is true. So um, I won't react to Gavin Orland yet. Um, we're going to talk about something spicier, probably, and more relevant because yeah. it's strictly from the Bible. Um, whereas Gavin Orland is not. He's from Indiana or someplace. Uh, Psalms. The Psalms. The Psalms are great. Um, any gentle-hearted or manly theologian the whole spectrum of christians love the psalms and you should too uh psalms are songs it's the old hymnal of the christian people and they've kind of gone by the wayside as far as christian churches don't typically worship with psalms Mm -hmm. Um, there are some really weird churches and i think they are rightfully really weird i don't think they should become mainstream there are psalms only churches meaning they only worship with psalms we're not even talking about that right now. We're just going to talk about the Psalms themselves. So that whole realm of controversy is not on the docket for today. Needless to say, I disagree with it. I think that you, of course, should and can worship with Psalms, but um, Paul himself says worship with hymns and Psalms and blessings. So I think any any song that's good and right theology is perfectly worthy of being sung in church. However, that being said, Psalms are important. And because they're the word of God, they don't return void, i.e. they hit hard. Bam. And if you scroll to Spotify and you look up Psalms in, in song form, uh, modern modern takes on Psalms, you will find zero. There's like one or two. It's really hard to find. Um, hard hitting Psalms. Most of them are the saddest guitar you've ever heard. And then some gentle peeling from a girl or boy that sound the exact same. <laughs> about how lovely god is which is great that those there are definitely psalms like that that have that exact same tone and lyrics however there are psalms that are not like that and i have heard some attempters of like making a a modern song that sounds good in english to all the psalms they attempt for a bit um to do that and as soon as they hit like psalm 2 or they hit Psalm 18, or they hit Psalm 14. They're just kind of weird psalms that aren't the gentle crooning of somebody on a guitar. They're kind of hard hitters, which we'll get to in a minute what that means, what I mean by that. And they usually 
veer past any of the hardness of the psalm. They literally ignore it. They don't even like come up with a weird way of saying it. They just ignore it and they keep going with their gentle crooning on the guitar. And that's a cry and shame. And I think if we sang them at church, people would be used to the weirdness, the hard-hittingness nature of some of the psalms. And we wouldn't be so affronted by them when we attempt to play them on uh, uh, our soulful um, lo-fi beats for Christian kids. That's what you have attempted to do? Play the psalms on your own? I have not personally attempted to do that, but I thought it would be cool if somebody did a full psalms project. And I think many other people have thought that. And so there's a couple of attempts on Spotify and YouTube and where else you might find your psalms that are sung. Uh, but none of them are complete to my knowledge. And if they are, they're like from the 1800s and they sound like children's tunes, which is not really my jam. Um, but the ones that are like modern music contemporary, it's just really hard. You know, there's like hundreds of psalms so it's, or hundred plus psalms. So it's just a lot of songs to write. But also, I've heard them, Sarah something Jig, Sarah McCracken, Sandra McCracken, I don't know, I saw them artists well enough, um, have a good amount, but McCracken, that's her last name at least, she is a great example of somebody who will take a hard-hitting psalm and then just ignore, like literally rip, like they're not even there. She'll take the paragraphs out of hard psalms, which I'm not trying to hit, uh, hate on her as a person, whatever, you can do whatever you want with your own song. But uh, we shouldn't be scared of those pastors. So you shouldn't have taken it out, McCracken. But whatever. <laughs> you're making it. It's not really a psalm. Then. It's your song. It's your take on Psalm 18. So what you're saying is that there's very spicy, juicy, controversial things in the psalms. Yeah. And if you're like on the Christian theology binge, you may know some spicy categories of psalms are called imprecatory psalms. Mm-hmm. Do you know what imprecatory means? Curseful. I suppose filled with curses yes sure and, and when I suggested this episode of Sebastian I thought just the imprecatory psalms but I think we would expanded it to it's not just the psalms that curse enemies which that is a thing so that's part of the topic of today's episode it's not just those that go hard um, there are also so just interesting images about God that are like never used on your local Christian radio station or in church Um, that I think are worth discussing as well. And there are just some situations that are often brought up in Psalms that we never sing about or talk about today. And I think we should, mainly because it's in the Word of God, but also it gives us a good rounded perspective of the kinds of problems we encounter in real life that we just don't sing about at church because we're embarrassed to or we don't remember to. And so they're there. They're there for our good. Um, But I know that me and Sebastian, when I brought this up, you had a different position than I as far as the kind of way we should treat imprecatory Psalms. So we'll explore that too. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've spoken a lot. Do you want to preface this episode at all before we get into the Psalms themselves? As always, uh, we encourage you to dive deeply yourself in the Word of God. And this is going to be, I would say it's it's not an easy topic. It's definitely intense. And my my suggestion is don't just um, take one person's opinion, our opinion, consult as many of your elders and leadership in your church as you can because I know that's something that I've done on my own because I want to be I want to have a good grasp of this of this part of the of God's word yeah I would also hold your elders feet to explain their positions as well because everybody's part of mistakes and tradition especially elders because they're older and as we get older we're all more ingrained in our tradition so um, don't take an easy answer if you think your elders wrong <laughs> but to stay stay amenable they are a christian brother and they have authority over you so i say that as a man who has elders over me uh 
well, let's dive in. So this is super cursory. I just wanted to highlight a couple. It's some, there's a lot of psalms. It's what I mean to say. So we're not going to go through all the psalms, um, but we're going to go through a couple. And some of the ones that I thought hit weird. So we're going to get progressively weirder and harder and more, more uh, less amiable and less singable in church as we go. But I'm going to start with just a weird one. It's not imprecatory. It's just Psalm 14. Psalm 14 is repeated twice. If you check your Bible, it's Psalm like 14 and 50 something. Um, I should really have my, my stats here. Does it say online? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> psalm 14 is repeated it's twice in the Psalm, the Psalter. So I, I don't think there's like super significance to that. It's a really short Psalm. Um, it's from David. It's for everyone to sing. It says for the choir director or the director of music or whatever translation says, which means especially super for everybody to sing. It's for corporate worship. And it starts out with the super common saying that's on all your radio stations, which is, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one good, no one who does good. That was not in your local Christian radio station. <laughs> mighty, mighty. It's not imprecatory, just descriptive of the world. Um, and it is a psalm that is quoted in the New Testament, often by Paul and others. In uh, Romans. Say, yeah, in Romans, exactly. So like, it's worth singing about, and we don't really sing it in church. So it's bitey language, right? The fool says in his heart, and some people will quote Proverbs or Jesus and say, you shouldn't say fool. That's it's a curse you're not allowed to say. And David does, and here it is in the Psalms. I think you should be careful. Keep in mind what Jesus has to say about calling people fools. Um, keep in mind what Proverbs say about insulting people. But this is directly from the word of God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So don't leave it. Take it. That's what the Lord would have us sing because these are his songs spoken through David. Uh, it speaks to total depravity. Mm-hmm. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. This is actually one of the main verses that evangelists use to show the need for the gospel. Mm-hmm. It's not very pleasant to hear if you're a non-believer because you think you're a good person. I don't know if I'm thinking if Ray Comfort, who likes to show in video a lot of his discussions with um, unbelievers, I don't know if he has exactly quoted this one, but he it gets to he does get to the point that you're not a good person even by your own standards, you fail miserably. So I would say Paul even uses that to show how we needed that Messiah to come and die for us. Yeah, and I I don't want to stop there. I think there are some songs that I can think of at the top of my head that that have that line, right? That that there is no one who does good. Um, But they don't really dwell there because it's unpleasant (laughs) or whatever because they're not the psalm. And I think they lose the power of the psalm when they don't dwell on it because the psalm doesn't just stop there. It doesn't have the one sentence. It says again, The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even run. So another repetition of that there's no one good it really is landing on this point mm-hmm. and then it keeps going so it still doesn't stop it says do all these evil evil doers know nothing they devour my people as though eating bread they never call on the lord but there they are overwhelmed with dread for god is present in the company of the righteous you evil doers frustrate the plans of the poor but the lord is their refuge oh that salvation for israel will come out of zion when the lord restores his people let jacob rejoice and israel be glad that's the whole song just got redemption. It's got the Lord's justice in there. Um, it's not imprecatory. I don't think like there's no like die enemy die. It's just that you will be you know, the enemy will be overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous, and He's gonna 
be the refuge of the poor. It would be something unusual to hear in modern music, perhaps, is what this mean, the way it starts. Uh, yeah, and it's not because modern music has guitar and synthesizer and... They smoke, had guitars and trumpets and... Yeah. You, could, you could make a smoke machine back in 2000 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could have, could have done rock music, I guess, back then. No synthesizers, but pretty close. Uh, it's purely because of modern sensibilities, which I don't, I don't mm. think that that is righteous. It's not in the age of Jesus that we shouldn't be singing this kind of thing. I mean, the Lord is consistent. This is the same Lord who inspired this psalm as the same one that came and saved us on the cross. Uh, yeah, so that is harder to read, I think, because it's so self-flagellatory. And then also it talks about the justice of God, which I think is the thing we're most uncomfortable about because we were once sinners. And so it. I think, honestly, it hurts us to think about the punishment that was coming towards us um, when we sing about the justice for our enemies. And I think that's exactly why we should sing about justice for our enemies and why God provides it in the Psalms, because we should know what we were saved from, like how wicked we really were. It should give us more grace in our enemies to sing about the justice that God is bringing on our enemies. So there you go. There's Psalm 14. So we're starting gentle. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that gentle. <laughs> A warm up. Psalm 18, this is long, so we're not going to go through the whole thing. But Psalm 18 is one that I'm personally taking upon myself to memorize because I like it. It's just one that I've always liked to pilot it in my um, Bible. It's got a lot of good parts about it, so it's not all spicy. Some of it are classic things that you would expect in a psalm if you didn't know better. However, a special thing about Psalm 18 is that it is the psalm that David writes in 2 Samuel about it kind of his life. It's like his life psalm. And so it's repeated in 2 Samuel, basically word for word. There are a couple changes, as in the Psalter in Psalm 18. And so it's double in your Bible, just like the previous one. And so then maybe worth some extra attention. And it's because it's David's life, he talks, it's even prefaces it specifically. It says, for the choir director, um, meaning it's for everybody, director of music, whatever your translation says, for everybody to sing. It says, of David, the servant of the Lord, he sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And then it goes on and it says things like, I love you, Lord, my strength, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God is my rock and whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called the Lord is worthy of praise. These are all very normal songy song things. And these are things you would actually see in a church. You know, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. However... The psalm doesn't stop there. Yeah. Um, it gets it gets weird, like, and not again, not just in imprecatory kill my enemy ways that you might be expecting. It's just very awesome depictions of God that I want in our songs. Like, why don't we take at least inspiration from psalms like this? It's not the only one that has God coming down like this. So here's David. He's calling for rescue from his enemies and from the trouble that he's in. And it says this. Smoke rose from his God's nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew, soaring on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High made his voice heard. He shot his arrows and scattered them. And with great bolts of lightning, he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at your rebuke, Lord. The blast of the breath of your nostrils. That's like, dang, dude. Who would ever depict God um, shrouded in darkness? You know, that's, 
that's creepy. Like that, if you wrote that song, people would think you were possessed by the devil, and you get a note sent to your parents, and when you're in Sunday school because you're being too dark and gritty, and that you're really worshiping the devil. No, that's that's how David is describing God, and so I think we should have some of these awesome depictions of God coming down like this, or you know, g- genuinely being not super cuddly. Of course, the Lord can be cuddly, but His standard practice is not to be. Right? He is the awesome, holy God that stands above all others. So that's cool. Take that away from the psalm. Uh, there's, and again, it's all juxtaposed in between things that we all love. Like it says, he reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drooped me out of deep waters. That's like straight out of oceans, you know, the popular Christian song about taking me out of deep waters. But then on a separate category of things that are hard for us to read, so it's hard for us to read God being like super awesome and kind of scary. Okay. Maybe not that hard. Then it has a line like this. The Lord has dealt with me according to my my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him, and I have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my, my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Kind of in contrast to this Psalm 14 about us all being sinners, here's David talking about his own righteousness, which makes us all uncomfortable because we're used to calling ourselves sinners um, to some extent, at least, right? And this is like talking about our righteousness, which can sound a lot like boasting, and that's bad. However, if you read read Romans, which starts out as no one's good, not even one, if you keep going, oh my goodness, is it chapter four or chapter five? Now we have been justified in Christ Jesus. We have peace with God. We have been justified. We have been, we will be glorified. We have been made holy. And I would say that David is boasting, not in his own literal righteousness from himself, but rather he is boasting through the Holy Spirit in the righteousness of God that has been granted to him, which has been granted to all believers. Yeah, it evidence because... David was, I mean, quick, maybe relative, but he's quick to repent. You know, he repented for the Bathsheba incident. He repented for the blood on his hands. He repented for his own weakness um, decently readily, you know, readily compared to other kings, especially. And so it wasn't that he was unaware that he had sinned, and yet he writes something like this. I agree with you, Sebastian. He's, first of all, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he's also talking about the the righteous state that the Lord puts him in. So I think we can boldly sing this stanza from the Psalm 18 because we are sitting in Christ's righteousness. And so instead of making it a boast about ourselves, we're really boasting in the cleanness that God has made us in and what he calls us to, which is blamelessness. Yeah. So that you might struggle with if you're reading a psalm like Psalm 18. It's not the only psalm that has that kind of language in it, but I think that's how we should read it. I think it's uh, I think it's how David would have you have read it. I don't think it's a change in the in the light of Christ. I think it is something that David would have had you read. It's really the righteousness of God through you. Um. Then then you get into the enemy stuff. So this is a psalm with enemies things in it. Um, I think some of it is just cool, awesome depictions of God. One of my favorite lines in this psalm would made me have the psalm on my memorization list is line 34 which says he trains my hands for battle this is god speaking about god to david he trains my hands for battle my arms can bend a bow of bronze that's cool you know that's that's again stuff language we don't have in a lot of modern songs um modern songs i guess you like 
I can shoot a cannon, you know, like something big, something people can't shoot. You can't bend a bow bronze with your bare hands, so you can't shoot a cannon with your bare hands either. But the Lord's letting you do it. Um, and that he trains your hands for battle. I think because Christians are typically afraid or at least antsy about talking about Christian war or righteous war, we are afraid of talking about having our hands trained by God himself for battle. But we are trained for battle. Um, and not just spiritual battle, for earthly physical battle as well against evil people. Um, it's all the caveats about how you wage righteous war and when you resist and all that, but God has trained David's hands for physical battle, you know, physically battled. So that's a cool part of the psalm. And then, of course, he talks about enemies. It gets even better. <laughs> uh, more spicy, at least, yeah. He says, I pursued my enemies and overtook them. David speaking. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them so that they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You, God, armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs to f- in flight. I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as windblown dust. I trampled them like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of the people. You have made me the head of nations. People I did, do not know, uh, did not know now serve me. Foreigners cower before me as soon as they hear of me. And, you know, it goes on. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. The Lord lives. Please be my rock. Exalted be my savior God. So, I mean, it's just a part of the psalm. And he goes on to more pleasant psalmic language. But therefore, just like other sections that I don't think we should have ignored, this is wholeheartedly part of the psalm. It's not an extra add-on. It's not something we should skip for the modern day. I believe we should sing about, about this. And not even just that they pursued David's enemies and overtook them, which is true. He, God did delivered David from his enemies. I think we should pray this, praying that God would uh, give us victory over our enemies. That's that's my general take here, is that, that we do not have to change the psalm. We don't have to limit the psalm. We don't have to remove this out in the light of Christ, telling us to love our enemies. I believe this is a valid section of the psalm, just like the rest of it is, that should be read in its proper context, just like the righteousness line could could be taken out of context to boast about our own greatness when it shouldn't be. I think this line about destroying your enemies could be used to unjustly curse somebody who doesn't deserve it or uh, foster sinful hate. Um, but I do not believe it has to, and I believe there's a righteous way of, of reading it. Say more about enemies. Well, that's the thing, right? I think that we need to define who our enemies are. Uh, we could say a lot, and maybe we should just get into it right now. I think there are, there are a couple of ways to take this. And Sebastian, maybe you want to help because you were a little... We have different opinions on this. Maybe we're coming to the same opinion, whatever. We're not super solid on our opinions here, but... <laughs> came into this discussion with different opinions. How would you yeah. take this kind of text? For me, I would interpret this as, you can sing this in church because it is Holy Scripture. And this is true. God was just in empowering David to overtake his enemies or even in any other context, like in Isaiah, Jeremiah, when there is judgment language, very appropriate for the time on that specific situation. I would be more, I'm speaking for myself, I would be more cautious about praying this and substituting King David for myself and praying, let's say, about uh, an enemy, one of my enemies, all the enemies that I have, oh, apparently. Enemies. <laughs> got a lot of enemies. Oh, you'd be surprised. And my, my temptation would be to fall into sinful hatred towards the people that I am praying about. 
It's like, my God, like crush my enemies. Uh, knowing how I am, I would immediately fall into a, a sinful request towards God. That's why I would say I would I would not want to pray that knowing well how 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 I would be, uh, act in the, in that situation. Yeah, and though I I don't agree philosophically and scripturally, I will back up your point so that those in the audience that have similar opinions can be validated here. I, I know the arguments at least. Uh, let me go to Matthew. I think this is like the one we always think about in the heart when that bothers us, when the prayers against enemies bother us, we think about this. Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, is reiterating the law. And I want to emphasize, and if you've seen any Found Cause episodes, you've heard me harp on this too much. Um, the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus sitting on the mountain saying, you have heard knife for knife, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. That language um, is all in context. The Jesus, before he starts the this, this sermon, says, I have not come to abrogate the law, mm-hmm. but to fulfill the law. So he, he says this all in the context of, I am not changing the law. I am not doing away with the law. I am not putting it away. The law was good. It's from me for crying out loud. You know, he's the word of God. He's the one that gave the law to Moses. He's not doing away with the law. So everything he says here in the Sermon on the Mount is not new material. When he fulfills the law through his death and resurrection, through him being the high priest, all of it is fulfilled. He's not so in that way, he's changing the law in that the Levitical priests now don't do the daily sacrifices of animals because the once-for-all sacrifice has been done through Jesus. That is a change in the law, but it's really a fulfillment. He didn't abrogate the old law. He didn't say, remember that thing I said about sheep and goats? Like, throw it out. You know, never remember it again. It was it was past. It's now me. He says, remember it, but I I am now the goat and the sheep. Like, I am the fulfillment of it. And so there is fulfillment in Jesus, but he does not abrogate the law. He never abrogates mm-hmm. the law. So I would say in the same way, he doesn't abrogate the Psalms. The Psalms aren't mm-hmm. aren't old news, never seeing them again. They're actually evil now. Ha ha, JK, old God, I'm new God. <laughs> uh, so all that said, he says this line in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the children of your father in heaven because he causes the sun to shine on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So how can we pray against our enemies pray that god trample them before us that the lord give us victory over them if we are supposed to not not hate our enemies and love them we pray for those who are persecuting us if i understand your position on this as we were preparing for for the episode Mm -hmm. this is specifically referring to justice versus injustice to be done so for the loving your neighbor and hating your enemy i think i gave you the example of if someone does you harm like by stealing a few drachmas from you don't say i'm gonna go kill your family right that is that is evil that's doing trying to do evil to correct some some evil so in the love of neighbor it is seeking the correct justice from the law of god which is just which is the ultimate standard of justice because it came from God himself. That's exactly my take. Okay. 
So I think we we misapply this a lot because people, because pastors and sermon makers are always looking for unique things. And honestly, these days it's not unique at all, but it used to be, you know, back in 1800s it might have been, when Jesus says, um, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He's not refuting the love your neighbor part of the law. Hate your enemy was never part of the law. So when he says, you have heard that it was said, love your enemy and hate your enemy, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy, hate your enemy portion of that sentence was never from the law. He's saying, you have heard it from your leaders, you know, from the Pharisees, presumably, but it's not actually from the law. The law doesn't say, hate your enemy. Um, he says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Just like when you love your neighbor, you don't not prosecute your neighbor for murder. In the same way, loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you isn't not prosecuting them for murder or for standing up for them, uh, standing up against them when they're doing true evil against those you love or whatever else. Um, what it is saying is don't don't um, withhold justice from your neighbor, uh, from your enemy. So even if it's your enemy and they hate you and they've wronged you in the past, but now they're in a car accident and they're sitting stranded on the side of the road, still go and help them out of the car. Like, yes, they may have stolen your goats in the past. Maybe they even want to kill you, but you're still to, to treat them well. You can, you can still charge them for attempted murder. You can still do all the stuff that is right and good to do um, legally. However, like be kind to your enemy even then. So what reward do you, will you get if you only love those who love you, right? Love those even who don't love you. Proper love includes justice, but it doesn't only include justice, it also includes kindness. So that goes to the verse 47 here. And if you greet only those, your own people, then... What are you doing more than others? You should also greet your enemy, even though he's insulted in the past or he wants to kill you, you know, whatever spectrum of evil your enemy has done to you, still greet them, still be patient with them and kind to them. You may still have to give them the rod. You may still have to sue them. You may still have to do um, things against them that are bad, but they're actually good. They're good for society. They're good for that person. Justice is good for the person you're giving it to if it's proper justice and they're good for you. And that way be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect because the heavenly father gives is patient with the wicked but he also gives justice to the wicked so in that same way we can do the same to them so all that caveat to say mm-hmm. i think that when you read this and you read the verses before it and all, all the things about loving enemies or not re- resisting an evildoer i believe they're all the exact same caveat i don't think we should use that caveat to say that we don't have to love our enemies i think you do have to love your enemies it just also doesn't fall into the other side of the ditch to say that you can never resist your enemy and that you can't pray that justice be done to them. So when we see, I'll go all the way back to Psalm 18, when we see a a song section like this, I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back until they were destroyed. I crushed them so they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You, God, armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. When you read that kind of language against enemies, we can justly read it to say that the Lord is just to deal with our enemies. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he deals with our enemies through us. And sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes we are destroyed by our enemies. Like sometimes that's the story God writes. But God can, and it is just that he does, crush our enemies before our feet. He does it for Jesus. He does it for non-Jesus. Like he does it for David, right? He does it for us. So this is a, a righteous way to pray about your enemies. I think you need to be careful, like Sebastian mentioned, that you can unrighteously hate your neighbor. So say your neighbor um, didn't greet you in the marketplace, right? Or, you know, they, they stole your mail. I don't know. 
smaller things and then you unjustly react bigger right and then you say because my enemy made fun of me in kmart yesterday um lord destroy him you know may his may his family die and 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 all his people rot. Um, I think that is, it, it, I mean, it, I don't just think it, that is not the proper recompense for his sin. He didn't sin against you like that. And so I think we should be careful who we categorize as our enemies. And honestly, these days, I don't have the kind of enemies that David had. Man, man enemies, right? Even those who do mass atrocities like Vladimir Putin or presidents of the United States or whatever, whoever like has way bigger sin bills than your neighbor Bill across the street. Um, even them, they typically have not done super evil against you, you know, against me, the psalm singer. I may know of their evil and pray that it come back on them, but like, was it really against me? Is it really my enemy? I mean, it's pretty rough. So I would say that typically Christians that are singing these songs don't have this kind of enemy. So we should be careful when we think we have that kind of enemy because we <laughs> probably don't. Um, I would say the one shared enemy that all Christians can have and this may be kind of a cop-out, but you heard all my caveats. I'm not copping out. Um, is the enemy, Yaid, like demons. Um, and I get this from Ephesians 6, a pretty famous line. It's Paul saying, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly realms. And ultimately... When we have enemies, yes, there are people enemies, and I think they are rightly defined as enemies. They're opposed to you. They're captured by the enemy demons. Um, we should ultimately be worried about the dark forces, the spiritual forces of heavenly evil that influence these people, whether indirectly or directly. Don't need to get into all that because I'm not. I also am wary of like every single enemy of mine must be possessed by a demon. I don't. I don't agree with that ideology. However. Ultimately, the forces of dark that are pushing already sinful men into further sin and hatred of God are spiritual. And so when we read Psalm 18, back to the enemies section, I think we can read it. If we don't have a particular enemy that fits the bill, that deserves being crushed underneath our feet, we can pray that the enemy, Biggie, you know, Satan and his minions, uh, that they be pursued and overtaken by us, and that we not turn back until they are destroyed, and that they're crushed beneath our feet so they cannot rise all through God. God's the ultimate victor here. I think that's I think that's a great way to read it if you don't have an enemy that fits the bill. And the caveat and warning that Sebastian says, I also agree with, if your neighbor down the street forgot to return your sugar, don't be cursing him, right? Like, <laughs> blessings and cursing shouldn't come in your mouth like that. I think there are times when people do deserve this kind of blessing and be led by the Spirit in that regard. I don't think we should ignore these psalms that have these kind of curses, but I think that they are fair um, curses to give when they're appropriate. Just like wine or any other thing that should be taken with care. Wine is something that is a Christian liberty. It's commanded to be taken as part of communion. I think it is the proper way to be eating and drinking of the Lord. There are people with problems with alcohol. And plenty of Baptists argue that nobody should... There are some people who will be triggered so badly by tasting, smelling, using alcohol back into their alcoholic habits that they shouldn't have it at all. And I would say, okay, like... I'm not gonna, it's not going to be the hill that I'm going to die on. You can do that. I'm in a Baptist church that does not serve alcohol. However, I think that is wrong. I think that having wine at communion, real wine at communion, is a proper way for Christians who have a problem with alcohol to eat alcohol in the right context, under control, under the supervision of their elders and people who could hold them accountable so that they can have a right relationship with alcohol, 
amongst all the other reasons you take communion. So in the same way, I think that people who have an anger problem and a cursing problem can sing the imprecatory psalms and be in a context where they're in worship with elders that can correct them, with people who are speaking into their life that can correct them. I think it's just like alcohol in that you may think it is dangerous because you have an anger problem. Got it. Or weakness in that regard. But I think we should still sing the psalm. Yeah. And I could keep going all day. Maybe you, Sebastian, want to bring up like Act 7 or some of these areas where... Um, other Christians have shown restraint in cursing their enemies, or do you <laughs> want to just go into like this even spicier psalms? Because there are spicier. We uh, Psalm eighteen is not spicy. <laughs> kill your enemies. Psalm close. out there. Not even close. So yeah, that, that, not in order, but it's not in order. But let's go one thirty-seven. And I want to hold off on the New Testament so that it makes more sense of why okay. I'm he- of why I am hesitant. Whether right. Whether I'm right or wrong, put it out in the comments too. And I'm willing <laughs> mm-hmm. to be corrected as well on Same this. And scripture, please, when you offer correction. From Psalm 137. This is another song. <laughs> A lot of weeping and sadness. Down to the bottom. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Now it's getting a little bit more more dark, more intense. Maybe it's the right word. Yeah, because killing people's kids, um, take it back to the law of God perspective, the proper punishment for somebody never goes to their children. As far as the way the civil authority meters out justice is that if uh, somebody has killed your whole family, the proper punishment only goes to that person. It does not go to their children. And so there's a law specifically about that, that the sins of the father shouldn't be visited on the son or the son of the father. Like the son went and killed a bunch of people and he wasn't under the father's roof, like it wasn't the father's responsibility, then it shouldn't you shouldn't kill the father for the son's sin. Which um, don't don't just glance over that. That is incredible for the time of the ancient world. That is that is a very good law because there are other countries in which, yeah, your son killed my family. Yeah, I'm going to exterminate you, your uncles, and your aunt that lives, you know, on the other side of your country. I'm going to find her and kill her. So there was there was extreme vengeance in in many societies. So that law is incredible. Yeah, I think to that point, our hearts desire for proper justice, and I think that actually there is justice in somebody's whole clan suffering because they're all wicked and they all would have done it because they're all from the same line. So I think often a son does take after his father. That's the way the Lord has typically designed things. So typically a son is like the father. And so if the father is a wicked man, probably the son is a wicked man, again, unless the Lord has interfered. So the punishment being metered out like one guy in Babylon being wicked, one nation, uh, their sons of Babylon, the infants of Babylon are probably taking after the same kind and so they do deserve to be destroyed because they're of the same ilk Um, i think our hearts see that and that's why the ancients would enact it by you know enacting huge revenge sprees right like you stole my donkey so i'm killing you and your mom and your cousin and your wife and your daughters um i so I, i hold room for there being the heart justice in there but god restricts man's civil justice from being able to meter that out 
So that that being said, I think it is, ju- here it is, the Lord mm-hmm. allowing it to be written in a psalm. I think it is justice to say, daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you've done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Babylon is wicked, decidedly. And so they do deserve to have their infants dashed against rocks. That doesn't mean that it was the Israelites to do that. But some, you know, the Lord will will some evil man to do it. Um, it was the, if I recall correctly, from it's from Isaiah. I believe it's the Medes uh, who would eventually go, come in and seize Babylon. Mm-hmm. It says these people do not care for gold and silver, but I will stir them up to come in and take over Babylon. But they were sinful people themselves. And this is, I think this is a whole different topic, but the role of authority. For example, in Isaiah 10, one of the passages I love to cite to show how God truly is sovereign over everyone's will, contrary to what some people like to think. He, after the king of Assyria does what the nonsense that he's doing, pillaging, plundering, conquering, he will punish the king of Assyria and his soldiers for the evil that the king has done. You may say, well, why the soldiers? Well, they're under his authority. Right. So likewise, I would say the the subjects here of Babylon, the, em- the, not the emperor, the king, the ruler of Babylon, under his authority are those subjects who are joining in his in his campaigns. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a whole different topic. Yeah, and the baby killing, I think, really affects people here because they think babies are innocent. They're not. The, the Bible takes no age of accountability into account. Um, it does talk about knowing the law versus not knowing the law. It suffers more or less sin, right? Yeah. If you know the law and then still disobey it, you're From more, Romans, yeah. more uh, accountable. But you're still accountable for sin, even if you didn't know the law. Yes, then Dave, in another psalm, I forget this psalm, David says, surely, surely I was sinful from birth. So right. even from the moment when my mother conceived me, you were born in sin. So is it, have you sinned as much as a mass killer would? No, but you're still alienated from God from the moment of conception. Yeah. And we say all that, yeah. they go to probably, I mean, one of the harder, one of the most like bashy um, imprecatory Psalms is Psalm 109. You want to read it? Sure. This would be, this would be interesting. <clears throat> Verse six. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he has tried, let him be found guilty, and may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him, or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off. Their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may blot out their name from the earth. It goes on. Uh, But, yeah, it's pretty intense, right? It's not just like, may he receive justice, O Lord, like may he be destroyed, or may I have victory over him, or whatever. It's very specific as far as his wife being a widow, and his children being fatherless, and strangers plundering his fruits, and nobody extending kindness to him, and him never being forgiven his sins, nor his mother having her sins forgiven, nor his uh, children. So, very thorough. And it's on, like, all family member style stuff. So, we already caveated why that can be just. I believe it is just in that 
Lord is the one that enacts justice ultimately here, right? It's a, it's a petition to the Lord to enact all this. So it's not David doing it himself or whoever's writing this on. Um, but I think we don't bat an eye typically when the Lord sets these exact curses over Israel when they're entering the promised land. And he says, if you don't obey me, your children will be destroyed. You'll be in famine. Nobody will remember you. People will mock you and scorn you in poverty. Your, your wives will be childless. Your mother will be destroyed. Like he says, very similar curses on Israel. We're like, hmm, okay. <laughs> and, then, and then David asks for the exact same kind of justice to be meted out against his enemy. And we go, what? How could you possibly ask for that? That's the kind of justice the Lord gives. Like it was justice when God does bring about those curses on Israel, when Israel disobeys him. And so it is justice when our enemies receive this kind of curse. But it's all metered out by God. And so that's why this prayer is a petition to God. Because those are the kind of things that you can't have the law do because the law has rightful God-given limits. The law says that just because you have an enemy who's opposed you and does something very wicked, even up until murder or other high crimes, you can't make his children father, or you can't make his... I guess you could make their children fathers. You could kill him, but um, you can't uh, make his children wandering beggars or have his creditors seize all his assets. Like, unless I guess he stole something, unless there was a law that or a crime that he committed that specifically warranted that. No one extending kindness to him. No one taking pity on his father's children. Like those are things that the law doesn't allow us to do. But the Lord can bring that kind of justice, and the Lord is right in doing so. So that's why I think these law, these psalms warrant singing and examination and confirmation by every Christian out there because this is the God we serve. He is kind and merciful, but he's also just. And this is the kind of justice he can bring and the kind of justice he has spared us. So we should remember that he does this kind of justice so that we can remember his mercy. We should not forget his justice because then we will forget how big his mercy is. And I think we totally miss how big God is when we... um, flee from this kind of text. And we, we aren't prepared to defend God when somebody brings up this kind of text attacking God in everyday debate, in conversation at work. Like this is the kind of God that people fear, that atheists, that, that God-haters everywhere fear this text. So they hate it. And typically they don't even bring it up because it's too terrible for them to even talk about. But they think it in the back of their minds and this is why they hate God. And we should be prepared to defend this God of ours who has this kind of justice because he extends that much more greater mercy that this was what we deserved and we didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With that clarification, it has actually softened my reluctance to praying something like this. And I wasn't opposed to David even uttering these words. My original position before clarifying this was that this was specifically given by the Holy Spirit to David for the specific context that he was in in his life. However, what you're saying is we can, Christians today, can pray this way. And the reason why I think it can be done, however, I would still caution myself. I don't mean, I don't know about you, dear viewer, but I would caution myself. Um, You can do it as a Christian because you are not going to do these things yourself. Rather, you are calling on God to carry out appropriate justice. God, not civil justice, or I mean, even civil, I suppose, right? By court, dragging the opponent to court. But divine justice that is equal to the evil that your enemy has done. Mm-hmm. And that, that, is, that is actually, that 
that is critical for, for me at least because you're not saying again this david like my enemy stole my sheep therefore because of stealing my sheep execute his wife i mean it, it is it is proportional you know, you know if you the creditors the punishment is plunder everything that he owes because he owes something so i mean what i see what i see is proportionality yeah and for evil that was done for the record the previous verses of the psalm say things like about the enemy with words of hatred they surround me they attack me without cause in return for my friendship they accuse me but i'm a man of prayer they repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship so like they've attacked him um so that's their just punishment i think with that said we should end with two new testament examples of why Christians do not have to. We don't have to bring curses on our enemies. We know the Lord is just. And so we are not required to, there, there are a couple exceptions in God's law, but most of God's law's punishments are not required to be metered out. They're not required to be charged. Um, for example, somebody stole from you, you don't have to charge them with stealing. You can just take the loss. Um, if, if, if somebody's charged with stealing, the court has the rightful obligation to carry that through. But if they aren't, then you don't need to. So in that same way, we don't need to curse our enemies. Um, and there are great evidences of this um, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but also from New Testament characters yeah. carrying that out. Um, Would you say that it was for the eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, which is supposed to be, you know, the proper punishment for the crime, mm -hmm. not go overboard or have leniency too much, imbalance injustice, and then do not resist an evil person. Someone slaps you, insults you. In that sense, turn the other cheek, let them insult you. You don't have to come back at the person. Yeah, and that's, uh, you're quoting Sermon on the Mount, right before the one about loving your enemy, Jesus also says, um, don't resist an evildoer. Uh, you've heard an eye for an eye, for a tooth for tooth. So those are God-given uh, up to points that you can punish somebody, right? If they take your tooth, you can punish them up to a tooth's value, same with an eye or anything else. But Jesus says, don't resist an evil to person. If anyone slaps in the right cheek, if anyone insults you, essentially, um, let them insult you more. If anyone wants to sue you to take away your shirt, presumably, by the way, with just cause that you did actually owe them your shirt, let them have your coat as well. Give them give them more than enough in their return. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, which is a legal right of kings to have over their subjects in God's law, it's also what the Romans did to the Jews, go with them too. Like extra give um, out of what, you're legally obligated to do don't, don't just give what you're purely legally obligated to do someone wants to borrow from you give it to them that's these are all things out of the law already they're not new things and so in that way i think we that that it's not applicable to say that don't resist an evildoer means that you shouldn't curse um your enemy that's i do not believe they're one-to-one -one. jesus isn't talking about that he's talking about making sure you're generous with your opponents um, which is different than not cursing them and giving them justice because you are allowed to give them justice. Now, you don't have to uh, and come after your enemies. You can actually decide that uh, to ask for mercy to be done on, on those people. I immediately thought of Stephen when coming up with the, with the scope of the episode. And in Acts 7, at the very end, the last two verses... While they were stoning Stephen, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. 
okay he died uh, was would he have been righteous to be like elijah and call fire from heaven on the pharisees that were like unrighteously chasing chasing him covering their ears at the wonderful news of the messiah that was risen and is the savior of the world uh, yeah totally elijah elijah did it when people came after him mm -hmm. so in, in this case i would say that stephen is setting the example that you don't have to do that you can ask god to have mercy on your on your enemies yes Amen. That one's easy to sell in church, I think, for the most part. But we should remember it. We shouldn't take for granted things that we currently think are easy. Because one day, those might be hard truths. So we shouldn't shy away from them either. To me, that would be really hard not to immediately start thinking of some you know, punishments for my enemies. So it, it, takes, it takes courage to, to pray that, especially if some people are throwing rocks at you, trying to kill you. Now, what I wanted to see to... To make sure that the psalms carry over like the the theme of the psalms of curse carries into the new testament was if there are any verses that seem to suggest that you know let god punish the evildoer from someone other than jesus of course mm -hmm. and in second timothy chapter four paul writes alex and near the end of his letter alexander the coppersmith did me much evil the Lord reward him according to his works. So, there. I mean, that's. It, it's not as robust as the Psalm 109, like we read, right? It's not like cursing every curse possible on him, but clearly this is Paul's way of cursing him, saying, Lord, reward him according to his works. And he's got bad works, so may the Lord punish him. Um, and he goes on to say, uh, this is in King James, so apologize, but he says, Of whom be thou ware also? Uh, for he hath greatly withstood our words. So beware of him. Like He's not a good guy. Resist him um, in some ways. So goes to show that it is a fair and proper sentence to say, may the Lord reward somebody according to their works badly, which is really what all the imprecatory psalms are saying, right? Reward these people according to their works and their evil. So reward them evilly. Um, here Paul does the same. So it's not a rule against good Christians to ask that God reward evildoers for their evil works. Um, in addition, I think pretty famously, Paul curses uh, the enemies of his who are in Galatia. So Galatians chapter 3 and 5 both talk about these Judaizers who had been trying to lie to the Galatians and say that not only do you need Jesus, you also need to keep all the dietary laws and you're still saved by the law and works. A pretty common approach even today for cult groups like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Roman Catholics or any other workspace religion has that same lie. And Paul curses them. He says, anybody who's trying to mix law and works, the things are justified by law and faith, let them be anathema, which is a curse word, and it means cut off from Christ. Um, you've fallen from grace, or anathema, you've fallen from grace, is what he, he describes it further, but anathema means cut off. And uh, that's a curse word that's been used ever since to curse enemies of Christ. So um, we've laughed about it before, but the Eastern Orthodox have songs that they sing that are their creeds and beliefs. And one of them, a lot of them start with anathema, just curse on, may they be cut off. Uh, and so it's a common Christian curse. Yes, triumph of orthodoxy. I forget the date when that's celebrated, but yes, anyone who rejects these holy icons, anathema, and then everyone echoes anathema. I know the grandma's saying anathema. Right. Three times, I think. Yeah. I think. Don't quote me on that. 
they're not that we're pro Eastern Orthodox, but they're using a Christian curse here from Paul against his enemies. Yeah, incorrectly. <laughs> but in any case, um, it is not outside of the bounds of proper Christian conduct to be cursing your enemies. I believe you should be careful about who you curse. Like here, we we know that Paul is righteous, and here he is righteously cursing Alexander the coppersmith. Um, so we should be careful how we sing the imprecatory psalms, but they aren't evil and still should be sung in church at some point. So that's all I really wanted to cover. Psalms are great. They're encouraging psalms. There are gentle psalms. To what we've said in this whole episode, it sounds like the psalms are like viciously awful to read through. There are great encouraging psalms. Even psalms that have um, hard-to-read sections typically have great-to-read sections in them. So it is the Word of God. We should respect it and read it, and we should not shy away from, I think, any of the psalms, the hard parts or the easy parts. Because again, one day, I think in the 1600s, it was probably really easy to read the stuff against your enemies and it was harder to read all the the gushy stuff and now it's easy to read the gushy stuff and it's hard to read the stuff against your enemies i think to stay balanced we need to read the whole of god's word so that um, we don't become unbalanced i don't want to become personally unbalanced and only loving the imprecatory psalms and not remembering the goodness of the gentle psalms too amen amen that's why we have found our cause in serving the lord jesus christ the writer of all the psalms. I've been Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my right has been Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And you can find us on podbean.com forward slash found cause. You can download all of our non-songs, our podcasts, for your listening pleasure. <laughs> we're also on Spotify, where you could find songs, but you can also find our podcasts. We're on iTunes, where likewise you can find songs. Um, you can listen to whoever McCra- S. McCracken. Um, see if I'm wrong. Maybe she's got some imprecatory psalms in there that I just haven't found yet. Uh, comment if you know some good imprecatory psalms out there i know there's a couple like my soul between lions has a couple like hard going psalms it only got like five or six and it's not a full full repertoire Um, till next time we talk about something completely different and maybe we do something cooler than this one for our 201st episode (laughs) i don't know uh thanks for listening bye